of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. By him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Whoa. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were untrained, common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that is a notable sign and has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Thank you, Pastor Craig. Appreciate that. All of that. I love, don't you love just Pastor Craig's heart? He's moved by the Word. And that's just inspiring to me. It's what I'm trying to center my life on and I hope for us we become increasingly people who are moved by the Word. Whether that comes out in emotion or action, God's Word is does not return void, it is living, and it is active. And so that's why we order our gatherings on Sundays around His Word. It's really the, the voice of the Lord. It's His revelation. We want to know Him more fully. So we begin by calling one another to do that as we give worship in song. We prepare our hearts, maybe read Scripture, pray together, in order to prepare to hear that we might be stirred, that we might be moved. And then we respond to the Word of God. So I'm kind of beginning this sermon at the end and we'll move back to the beginning. Are we ready to respond, to be moved, to be stirred by the truth of who Jesus is and the Word in our lives today? So we'll create space to do that. When I say amen in a few minutes, we will have a chance to sing together again, to sing in response, to sing prayers. We have a chance to come to the table to receive communion. In a moment, I'll read a passage that will guide us. We have a chance to give. You know, I, I, I want to say this consistently enough because I don't always say it, and if you're a guest with us or new to our family and the, the pastor preaches the sermon and then the bag is passed, that feels like there should be a stick with it to poke until we fill it up. The reason that's in position is a response. Again, it's a way to respond. Many of you give generously. Thank you, as Craig called out. You steward well. The reason we get to give, even as you come prepared to maybe bring a gift, a tithe, an offering, is an act of worship. It's a response to who God is and what He's done. That's why it's in that position. It's a way to engage. And hopefully there's a chance to be in continual prayer with the Lord and communion with what He is doing in our midst. So that's why we order as we do, as we come together, as we come to the table this morning, and certainly this lines up with uh, what we just heard read, Acts chapter 4, an incredibly powerful statement by Peter, one of the more famous articulations of the gospel in succinct form anywhere in the scriptures, Acts 4.12. Later, Paul would write a letter about this same Jesus, who has the greatest and most powerful of all names. And so as we come to the table, we are communing, or one being reminded of what 
Christ has done as we celebrate this communion meal. We are being reminded that we too are invited in as his friends because the first meal was around a table with the 12 of his first followers. And he broke the bread and he shared it with them. He shared the cup of wine and said, this is the new covenant in my blood. And so we are reminded that we too are called as friends to that table. That's the communion meal. But we don't, we don't just come in repetition or tradition or religion. We come in relationship with the living God. Being reminded again that there is no other name by which we find salvation than Jesus alone. So let me read from a Philippians chapter 2, Paul's letter to the Philippian church. He says, Be like Christ. Have this attitude. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, to be held on to, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. As we come today being reminded of who Jesus is, we come to the table willingly confessing with our mouth, certainly in our actions as we come to the table, we are moving towards him and once again declaring, Jesus, there's none other. Today we have the opportunity to willingly bow to him, to surrender to him. And we do all of that as we come to the table and receive. So let that be one of our responses. Again, when I say amen in a few moments. I said we begin at the end, and that goes for the sermon also. And then we'll move our way backwards somewhat through this passage. Why? Well, just because. Verse 19, kind of toward the end of what we just heard read. Peter and John answered them, Whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. Do, it, do what you will, as for us. That's what he's saying. As for us. We cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. It's, it's who we are now. This is, this is the way we will live our lives. The literal translation is, we have no power but to speak. In other words, we're not able to stop. We are not able to stop from giving testimony to what we have seen and what we have heard. We are compelled to speak of Jesus, to proclaim his word and the work he has done in our lives. Now, how many of us could, could stand right now and give that testimony? I have no power but to speak of what God has done and is doing in my life. Does it describe and define our lives? Is it even our desire? I think if we're honest, most days the answer is, no to those questions. Maybe on a good day, it's yes to the second one. It, it is my desire, but I'm far from that place. But for the followers of Jesus, the answer is supposed to be a resounding yes at all times, in all places, in all circumstances. And for most of us, it doesn't take opposition or persecution or the threat of a night in jail if we won't stop proclaiming Jesus. For most of us, it takes a Monday morning, a poor night's sleep, a cold, relationship tensions, stress at work, the Patriots in the Super Bowl again. The list goes on and on. It doesn't take much to just change our whole attitude. The passage I just read where Paul was exhorting the church to have the attitude of Christ. I, I will exhort us again to have the attitude of the early church, the early disciples. Remember, Luke is writing this book, this letter, as a description of the normal Christian life. Jesus has come. He has lived. 
He was crucified. He was raised. In our very midst, He has ascended. He promised the coming of the Spirit. The Spirit has come. We have a mission to complete, the kingdom to preach, and God is still with us. That's the same age that we are living in today. This is, this is the normal Christian life. And so Luke is describing it for us, and certainly this passage adds to our growing definition, kind of putting that banner on the whole series of new shoots, deep roots, diverse fruit. We see that again and again almost on every page of Acts. This passage grows kind of our understanding of what is characteristic of the followers of Jesus. One, a passion to speak boldly about Jesus. A passion that cannot be quenched by anything. A bit earlier, verse 13. The one we see the boldness. Now when they, the crowd saw the boldness of Peter and John, so that's to be characteristic, but I love this second part. They saw that they were simply uneducated, common men, and they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. That is characteristic of the followers of Christ, of the early church. Now whether they truly had eyes to see and recognize, hey Peter, he, weren't you with Jesus of Nazareth? I believe it's something even deeper. Something that can apply to even us today. That by their the spirit within them set them apart. Something was unique and different about these men, though they were simply commoners. Clearly, the power that was through them to heal a paralyzed man, that's what caused this whole buzz in the first place. They recognized that they had something different. They recognized that these men had walked with Jesus. May that be characteristic of us. What a longing I have. Whatever words are used by the community or the neighborhoods surrounding us, but if testimony would be given, you know, those people, yeah, those people that meet up there on that little hill, on that corner of Union Hill Road and 208, those people, there's something different about them. Maybe some would even use words, those people walk with Jesus. An example of the walk with Jesus was put on display again this week by many of you who engaged to serve our neighbors, to love and to pursue, just to bless. And there's something, there's something different about those people. Is that true of us? In some way, I believe it is, and I pray that it is growing to be characteristic, just like it was for the early church, these first disciples and apostles. Once again, I'll say this letter... From Luke, he wrote it to Theophilus. We can also call it a book, I suppose. It's a long letter. But it's a narrative. It's really narrative history. It's a description, again, of the normal Christian life, of the work of the Spirit. We kind of retitled it, the series, the whole, well, we retitled the letter. The longer title of Acts, where Acts comes from, is the Acts of the Apostles. We kind of retitled that and said, this is really the Acts of the Holy Spirit, through the apostles and early church. Won't quibble if you want to say this is the ongoing acts of Jesus Christ through the power of the Spirit, through the early church and the apostles. But we can just go with acts as long as we know what we're talking about. This is a description of the normal Christian life. It's not always prescription. So even in chapters 3 and 4, which are one scene, one account of Peter and John coming to the temple, seeing this paralyzed man, maybe for the first time with new eyes, they'd likely walked past him every day for days. They see him, they engage him, they offer him healing. In fact, Peter reaches and pulls him to his feet before he has even received the healing. And in that moment, the Spirit comes, strengthens his legs, strengthens those bones. And he goes walking and leaping and praising God. Now that caused quite a stir. Because inside and outside of the temple, they recognized this same man who was now standing before them. The man who had been at, seated at the gate for maybe decades. They could not deny it by their own lips. We cannot deny that this has happened. Notice they didn't even try to explain it, those who didn't believe. They simply dismissed it. So this is all 
description of this work and the buzz, the inside and outside the temple, the opposition, but also the transformation. As the church grew, it says to 5,000 men. Previously, we knew the number was around 3,000 believers. If Luke is saying it's 5,000 men, then we also would add women and, and children. And so the church is truly multiplying, growing to that hundredfold harvest. But if this is just description and not prescription, I mean, if it was prescription, then what would we do? We'd be marching out of these doors and maybe assembling at the city center and the, the doors of our capitol building or the, or the stairs or walking through the streets and, or maybe assembling at religious temples or mosques, gathering in those places, looking for opportunity to work to proclaim Jesus. And some of you would love that very much. And some of you are stirred to go in those kinds of ways. But that's not prescription for the church. It's description of a regular rhythmic life. And so how do we bring that application to us today? What is the prescription that we share with Peter, with John, and with the early church? Well, first and foremost, Acts 1.8, which we spent quite a bit of time on. The mission of the church, some of Jesus' final words to his disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. He did come. And then you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, throughout Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That's prescription. That's Jesus saying, this will happen and you will be. We receive that. We are under that same mission I wonder if they also had Christ's words to them toward the end of his earthly ministry in Luke 21, verse 12. Listen to this description to see if it does not apply almost word for word what they were experiencing and living out now in Acts 4. Jesus speaking, before all of this takes place, before the final end times, here's what it's going to look like. People will lay their hands on you and persecute you. They will deliver you up to the synagogues and even to prison. And you will be brought before rulers, kings, governors for my name's sake. And this will be your opportunity to bear witness. So settle it therefore in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. It's exactly what is happening in Acts 4. How could that not have been on their minds? As the Spirit brings to memory all that Jesus had spoken. I'd like to say it. I think Acts 4 was on Jesus' mind when he spoke those words. This will be fulfilled in your midst. Don't worry about what to say. You'll be brought before them. Persecution will come and find you. I will give you the words to say at that time. They will not be able to refute it or deny it. Exactly what took place. Peter would later write a letter. And I think he probably also had this account in his mind. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 13. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer... For righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Even if you should face opposition, persecution for your faith, have no fear of them, those who oppose you. Don't be troubled. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. And always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Later, we'll see Paul and Silas in prison, Acts 16, singing hymns. They're in the stocks, and they're singing hymns and praying. And the jailer has a life-transforming moment in witnessing their faith and their joy and witnessing the power of God through them. I believe Peter and John, though we're not told, had a very similar evening in jail that night. They lived with such a hope and such a confidence in what God was doing and the opportunity to speak for for him was coming. Peter is thinking of that when he writes those words much later in that letter. Always be prepared 
to give a reason for the hope that you have. That opportunity is going to come. Do it with gentleness and respect. Now, Peter, I'd say, was very bold, but there was an honor given even to the religious leaders at that, at that temple. Well, these are just a few of the prescriptions that we share. These are the prescriptions. May they become convictions. Because convictions determine our behavior. Convictions determine our actions. What we are convicted by will result in outward display. That's natural. The convictions that Peter and John held, we must be gripped by too. That's the normal Christian life. In fact, as the, as the leadership team over the last year really dug in and worked on articulating core convictions, if you will, in harmony with the greater Alliance family. And so we borrowed from them, we changed a few words a little bit, we added a few, and we got to a list of ten. The point isn't to memorize or know those ten, but it's to recognize, Lord, we want to be convicted by these truths drawn from your word. And so many of them came right from what we see in Acts. This early church, the faith of these first disciples. And so here's four of those ten that we drew really right out of, well, this passage being one. But the ministry of Peter and John and later Paul. One, lost people matter to God and he wants them saved. Two, and this isn't in any order, this is just four of the ten that we've been praying, God, convict us in these. Two, knowing and living God's word is vital. Three, we must rely on the Holy Spirit. And four, faith takes risks. And we see clearly Peter and John gripped by these convictions and their actions are following. Lost people matter to God. He wants them saved. Knowing and living God's word is vital. We must rely on the Spirit. And faith takes risk. Would these convictions describe us, our character, both as individuals and as a church? We may never find ourselves before government officials facing threats or persecution or potential jail time if we won't stop proclaiming Jesus. Jesus said persecution will find us. We don't need to go find it. That's not, that's not the prescription. I'm sure there's a way that you could get yourself arrested if you tried. Being a public nuisance. Rejecting the authorities that be. That's not what we're called to. So we may never face that similar kind of circumstance. Though it's hard to say that there will always be religious freedom the way we have known it in this country. That's also not a promise given. Well, if we never find ourselves in that kind of place, knowing if I keep speaking, if I, if I was as bold as Peter was, hey, you be the judge. You do what you need to do. But for us, we can't do anything but continue to speak and preach of Jesus. We might find ourselves in a board meeting where we need to speak up. We just can't remain silent. We may never be on our knees with a sword to our neck and a threat that if we do not recant our faith in Jesus, we will lose our life. Was that just two years ago that more than a dozen Ethiopian Coptic believers were beheaded? We may never be in that position. We may be in a position where we're sitting with a friend or an extended family member or a neighbor who's in a crisis situation or a, just a desperate time and they're asking for help. Maybe they don't even know they're asking. But we know their faith isn't in, in Christ. What will we speak? What will be upon our lips? Will it be bold and gentle? We have a responsibility. 
Jesus has the ability. Let's track with those two. I said we'd be kind of working backwards because normally I would start with my second point, but I'm going to start with my second point first, if you can track that. We must be prepared. Not with a script. Okay, Jesus said, don't, don't worry about the words that you will say. I will give you those. So how can we be prepared? With the truth and the hope of the gospel. That the gospel courses through our lives. That we're ready with it on our lips. Peter, who said, always be prepared with that. Always be prepared to give a reason. To give a defense for the hope that you have. And I've preached on this before. One, we better be living with that kind of hope that's noticeable. Why else would we be asked? Always be prepared. Since he proves it here. He's ready. He's prepared for the opportunity. We cannot help but proclaim what we have heard. What we know. He gets to speak what we heard from the very lips of Jesus himself. Our testimony is what we've heard from his word. That's how we're ready with the gospel. We know, therefore we live His Word. That is vital. Daily in His Word. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Give us this day, Lord, our daily bread. Speak to us, Lord, daily. And if you need help with that discipline, which is probably most of us, though I won't ask you to show hands. That's where community comes in. Connect with Craig, the essentials group, men, the growth groups that are coming up. That we encourage one another in that discipline of knowing in order that we might live His Word. That's how we become prepared with the Gospel for the opportunities that might come. But what is the Gospel? What is the good news? Now that's something that every one of us should probably be able to articulate. And many of you have been walking with Jesus for decades. And your palms might start to sweat if I said, I'm going to call you up at random to come up here and explain clearly the gospel, the good news of Jesus to all of us. I remember one of my first courses in Northwest University, go Eagles. One of my favorite professors, he said, the first assignment, first day day of the class, the first assignment by the end of the week was to bring in one-page paper, no outside sources except the Bible if you want, but a one-page paper just answering one question, what is the gospel? That's it. What is the gospel? No more than 500 words. One page. See, I, I... this was like the only time in, in my life where all, and all, of, all of my classmates were doing the opposite of what students normally do. We were narrowing the margins, shrinking the line spacing, and reducing the font size. Because how do you explain the depth of the gospel in one page? And I remember how much I struggled with that, and I got, I got it onto one page. I think it was like 550, and I hoped he wasn't actually going to count the, the words, but I squeezed it in. Next week, assignment... What is the gospel? One paragraph. No more than 250 words. Well, there was no way. I'd already scrutinized as much as I possibly could to get it to 500. I had to rewrite the whole thing. You couldn't just trim here and there. So you rewrite. And I remember just the effort of, what do I say if I only have a paragraph? What, what, what do I say? You see where this is going, don't you? The next week, one assignment. By the end of the week, the gospel One sentence. What was his point? That he took three weeks to build, and I'm now, I won't tell you how many years later, remembering when I come to this passage. His point is, we must be ready with the gospel. In season, out of season. At all times. Great when we are sitting on an airplane on a cross-country journey, and we've got a captive audience, and We could speak pages and pages of the gospel if we have opportunity. But sometimes you'll be in an elevator. Are we ready with the gospel? Does it course through us and ready upon our lips? Not that we have the exact words like a script, but we know it. We live it. 
Why do I tell that example? Maybe it resonates with some, but, well, my one sentence, because, man, I struggled. Finally, at the end of the week, my one sentence was Acts 4.12. Then I worried a little bit about plagiarism, but I thought I might get a do-over if he didn't like that. He didn't give me the parameters after all, so Acts 4.12. One sentence, the gospel. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. I didn't get docked, but I think I did have to rewrite it in my own words. But this proclamation by Peter, this is the gospel. And certainly he used many more words. But they knew it and they lived it and they were ready. Are we in in season and out of season, whether in an airplane or on an elevator or on the bus? This proclamation is just as offensive was just as offensive to the Jews as I believe it is offensive to Gentiles today, non-Jews in our midst. Now, for the Jew, but for very different reasons. For the Jews, it was offensive because it was blasphemy. You're claiming that this man from Nazareth is God and that salvation is only in him. That's why they ultimately killed Jesus, for that claim. Also for the worry and the threat that he was causing, that they might lose their own positions of influence and power. Certainly that's still at work in the religious leaders here. The fear that they might lose their position is motivating a lot of their actions. What about to Gentiles today, non-Jews in our midst, whether agnostic, atheistic, deistic, to claim Jesus as the only way of salvation is not blasphemy, it's intolerance. And for our culture, that's much worse. It's not unlikely that we're living in a country that is heading toward putting an asterisk in the First Amendment. Freedom of speech and declaration of religion, asterisk, unless your proclamation is that yours is the only truth. That then becomes a hate crime. It's already in place that enforcing one's beliefs has consequences, will not be tolerated. Is it possible we're moving to even that proclamation where there will be risk for someone like me standing in a place like this with a sermon being recorded to make that proclamation? Well, one step at a time. Today we are free to do so. The problem is Jesus. The problem is Jesus made those claims. They're not mine. They're his. Matthew 7, 13. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction And those who enter by it are many. But the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. John 14, 6. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. The way is exclusive by Christ's claims alone. And yet it is open to all. Exclusive yet open. That's often an oxymoronic statement. Paradoxical. God has opened it to all. His desire is that all would be saved. 1 Timothy 2.3 This is good. It is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. He desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. And then that second half of that paradoxical statement, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. His desire that all would be saved and yet there is one way. In Peter's claim here in Acts 4.12, there is no other name by which men are saved 
but by Jesus Christ alone. It's all about Jesus. Everything points to him, and therefore you need to engage him and his claims. We cannot simply receive Jesus as a mere moral teacher or maybe a prophet. By his very claims, he is either a master manipulator, he is a madman, neither of which are worthy of being honored or let alone worshipped, or he is in fact the Messiah. The one Peter and John and the early disciples were proclaiming and willing to give up their life to preach. So we come to Jesus. There's no other name by which men are saved. And what a beautiful name. What a powerful name. And as we read earlier, there's, he was bestowed and given by God the Father this name above every name in heaven and earth and under the earth. In Ephesians, Paul said, no other name, not in the present age or in the one to come. For all time, the power of the name, the one man, his identity. Peter here quotes Psalm 118, showing Jesus as the gate and the rock. Psalm 118, 19. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Jesus in John 10 would claim he is the gate. He is the door. And all who enter through me find life. The rock was a more prevalent analogy throughout Scripture. The rock was a picture of God. Strong, secure, mighty, a refuge, unmovable, unshakable. Again and again in the Psalms. The rock of my salvation. And Peter here is saying, Jesus is the rock. Jesus is the one foretold. He is the cornerstone by which now the new temple is being built. The new temple, God's people, they are the temple. Jesus is the cornerstone. Paul would pick up that theme. The church is built upon Jesus, the cornerstone. The foundation is the apostles and prophets. And now all the saints are building up, being built up into the new temple. And just like he had preached before, Jesus is the Messiah. You killed him. He doesn't mince words again here. Jesus is the rock, you rejected him. Jesus is the one God has foretold, you denied him. I wonder if, and I'm guessing that Peter did not have Psalm 118 in his script notes coming before these religious leaders. He was simply prepared to give a defense, trusting on the promise of Jesus that in that place you will be given words. He's ready. He's ready because he knows the word of God. He knows the gospel and he's ready to speak it. We can be prepared in the same way that the gospel courses through our lives. We can also and must also be prepared by being in position. It's one thing to know it, to be ready to speak if given the opportunity and yet be never in a place to have opportunity. That's our responsibility. Much of it is to be in position to proclaim the gospel. Peter and John were going to the temple looking for opportunities to give witness to who Jesus was, what he had done, what he was still doing, and what he had promised to do. That's why they were going. They didn't know how that would work out that day. Whether it would be a one-on-one conversation or whether it would be a chance to preach publicly. Before they even got there, they see that paralyzed man with new eyes. It seems that the Spirit stopped them to engage him. And all the rest of this ensues. All because they were in position. They were going in pursuit of an opportunity, not even knowing what the opportunity would be. 
This is our call. To one, be prepared, but to two, be in position for the opportunity. And some days that opportunity won't come. We won't always be given the immediate opportunity to stand before a religious council or rulers or people in authority or even a crowd and give testimony to who Jesus is. We won't always have the opportunity to become a conduit for the work of the Spirit to heal or to work in a miraculous way. But sometimes, if we continue in faithful pursuit, the Holy Spirit may just work. I wonder when they first engaged that paralyzed man, if they believed that if they healed him, Jesus seemed to be indicating through the Spirit that he was there to present to heal. If they healed him, they're going to end up a night in jail and maybe worse. Would they have hesitated? Would we? If Jesus came from heaven to earth, we can cross the street to our neighbor. We can cross the hallway to a co-worker. We can move down the sideline to a fellow parent watching a game. We can be looking in position for opportunity. That opportunity may not come in that moment, but we will always have opportunity to cultivate relationships with lost people. For Jesus came to seek and to save that which is lost, and he has sent us on the same mission. What is one field within your reach? When I say fields, it's in the language of our vision to become like a greenhouse church. That we would all be growing more and more readiness with the gospel. Readiness for wherever God is going to send us, nudge us, convict us to go, or even replant us. Life is so uncertain and often transient. Are we a greenhouse that in this time we are growing deep roots in order to thrive if we get uprooted to replant in a new field? A new field that may be much harsher than our current environment. For any number of reasons, are we ready to thrive there too? Are we even praying, God, send me, move me? And no, it may not be moving to a new city or a new state or a new country. It may simply be moving to a new field, even within your current context. Could be a new job, could be a new neighborhood. Are we looking for opportunities? If we want to be a people who see new shoots of life in Christ, we better be willing to be doing new things. So when I ask the question, what is one field that is within your sight? Maybe one comes to mind immediately. It's likely because the Spirit's already been working, nudging, opening up your eyes to see, and maybe you've been resistant or maybe just distracted. And now the conviction comes and you know there's a step to be taken this week. Maybe it's a small step. For others, when, if, if, if I ask that question, you draw a blank. And I don't even, a new field, a new place, a new opportunity, I don't even know. I don't even know. Be bold enough to pray, Holy Spirit, send me, move me, give me eyes to see. Things that I've been missing maybe every day. Just like Peter and John saw that man that they likely had walked past every day. But that day, they were given eyes to see. Pray that this week. And then I would encourage your responsibility to do something new. Man, I like routine. I like order. I like things the same way. I've been eating the same breakfast and drinking the same kind of coffee for about 15 years. Do you ever drive a different way to work or home, not to beat traffic, but to pray? To look? Do you ever read the local paper? Not just for the highlights of the national news or the clickbait that's out there, but what's actually happening in our community? Looking for fields. Do you ever invite your neighbors to dinner? Even the ones that aren't at all like you. And what would you serve them? Serve them your favorite dinner. Maybe there's a nudge. 
Maybe it's an encouragement. Maybe it's a conviction. My last point, which is really my first point, the Spirit must do His work. The reason I said we'd move backwards through this, well, I guess this is a good place to end as well. Really, we can begin here. If the Spirit does not work, then no amount of our work will mean anything. If the Spirit is not present, if the Spirit is not moving, apart from Him, we can do nothing. Look at verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Spirit, said to them. Pause there for a moment. That is why I wanted to move backwards. Because if we get to verse 8 and we say, well, clearly the Spirit is empowering no wonder. He never does that in my life, and we could just tune out. He will do it. It's His promise. It just may look different. But remember, we said at the beginning of this series, the Spirit would come and empower and continue to fill His people. Because you could say, well, wait a minute, wasn't Peter already filled with the Spirit? Yes, he was. This is an ongoing filling, a special empowerment in that moment. And it's not supernatural. I mean, it is, but it isn't. Often when we think of the work of the Spirit, we, we may only go to the the miraculous, the healings, the transformations, which we just saw in this passage, but the vast majority through acts of the work of the Spirit is, we might say, ordinary, normal things empowered in that moment. Boldness to speak and to preach, to recollect something that was in his mind, but he didn't even know about and came forward in that moment. That's what's taking place here. The ongoing filling of the Spirit to empower His preaching and His teaching and His words. How incredible is it? Two main reasons. One, Peter, if you know anything about Peter, Peter stands boldly and preaches, whereas a hundred days earlier, in the face of no persecution by a servant girl questioning him, he denies and calls curses down upon himself that he does not know Jesus. Here he is, completely transformed. Second, he's a common laborer. He's a fisherman, and they know it. They looked and they saw that these men were uneducated, literally unlettered. The word is idiotes. Idiotes, where we get our English word Republican. I, I kept going back and forth on that one, I, whether to say Democrat or something else or not at all, and so grace abounds. They were idiotes. They were unlettered. If you feel that your life is a long ways away from being able to say, like Peter and John, nothing can keep us from giving testimony about Jesus. We are compelled. If you feel that you're a long ways away from that, there's hope right here. A hundred days earlier, Peter was denying Christ outright. Not just being silent. Denying. His life is transformed. And it begins with the prayer, Holy Spirit, convict my heart. Move in me. Stir me. Make it not of myself but of you and you alone, transform my mind, build my faith and hope, and convict my heart. That's the work of the Spirit. And He promises to bring to mind what we need to know, that we've been prepared with, to give prompts. It's, it'll be there for us. John 14, 26, The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things, and He will bring to your remembrance all that I have said. So both what we have heard and didn't even know we knew, the Spirit is at work in, He will even bring it to mind. He will teach us. Even in those moments, He is teaching. He is working. He is the one to reveal God for His glory. And we will speak of what we have heard and speak of what we have seen. Now you could say it's easy for the apostles. Look what they had seen. Can you imagine? They had seen Jesus for three years performing incredible, miraculous things, wonders and signs. They'd seen him rise from the dead and basically 
move through walls and now ascend before their very eyes. They saw the Holy Spirit come down like tongues of fire and they witnessed everyone speaking in foreign languages that they didn't know. And now this man they have seen healed in their very eyes just goes on and on. And where is that in our midst? Do not get over fixated on the miraculous. The hope for and longing for the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit is right only in to bring glory to God. God, your will be done. You were glorified then in that way. Would you be glorified today? May it be. But the miraculous in these kinds of ways does not produce faith. Certainly not guaranteed to produce faith. Some saw, heard, and believed, but how many outright rejected? Remember, they killed Jesus. Miracles do not guarantee faith, but miracles do guarantee the strengthening of faith. As our faith takes risks and the Holy Spirit works, it simply confirms and builds and strengthens what we already have come to believe. And perhaps this week, our risk is speaking up or going out, and that's what the Spirit has been stirring for us. But perhaps the risk is simply praying like this, Holy Spirit, work in my heart and my mind. Bring conviction that turns to action. That's a bold prayer. I'm going to invite the team to come and, as I said, give us space to respond, both to sing and to come to the table and to give. I believe there's a few songs prepared for us to do that. Could we pray even now to yourself? Maybe you'll pray with another as you receive communion or as we sing, you'll lean over and pray this together. Holy Spirit, work in my heart, work in my mind, bring conviction that turns to action. We have a responsibility. The Holy Spirit has the ability. God, make us a people. Here's my closing prayer. I wrote it out today. Join me. God, make us a people who cannot keep from speaking of what we have heard and seen. Even more, Lord, make us a people recognizable, not only for our words about you, but for our walk with you. Put us in position. Send us to new fields. And Holy Spirit, do your work for your glory and our joy. Amen. Holly, Eric, Brett, and soon to be Catherine, lead us on.